1: We've been going through the gospel of Luke and we're really getting towards the end. We're getting we're entering into the last three chapters, and we've been on this earth walk with Jesus, going through his journey, his life, his teaching, and here we've been specifically looking in this series of our earth walk, looking at what's happening to him in Jerusalem, what will happen to him on the cross, and what happened in the resurrection. And so in chapter twenty two. Everything shifts now with Luke. Luke is shifting now to where everything is in the final moments. What do you mean? Well, it's Thursday. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to be raised on Sunday. So these last three chapters are really covering just a brief period of time. If you think about how much we've covered throughout his life, his earthly ministry in three years, that was really a lot of what we saw in most of Luke. But here now, we're going to focus in on the decision to kill him, what happens as they take him, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus. And today specifically, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6, where's the decision to kill him. And I've kind of entitled this message, Gathering the Pieces. Because what we're going to see here is that the stage is being set. All the pieces are, are coming into the forefront now of what's going to happen. And some of these things are going to surprise you, but some of them you probably are already aware of. But we need to be reminded of this, because what we're going to see here today is this. Because you could listen to this message, you could read this passage and say, Oh, well, that's good, that's, that's, that's terrible that Jesus went through that but place ourselves above the text rather than identify with the text. Do you understand what I mean by that? We can place ourselves above the text and look at it and say, oh, well, that was terrible, but not bring anything out of it for ourselves. Or we can identify with it. And you say, how can I identify with people who want to kill Jesus? Well, what we're going to see here, folks, and our identity is in, is that we all have a dark heart. What is revealed here in these verses is the darkness of our own souls. The evil within our own hearts. Because the reality is this. I mean, I'll just be flat out honest with you. Every one of us here can think that we're sweet and great and wonderful. Given the right circumstances, the right situation, at the right moment, darkness can erupt in your life. And you can be pretty brutal. And you and I need to be aware of that. And what we're going to see today is people who are brutal. And we're going to look at it. So look with me. We're going to look at the first six verses. And then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do today. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Here's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to to basically divide this section. We're going to talk about gathering the pieces here. And we're going to gather pieces, first of all, from the outside. We're going to see the opposition to Jesus from the outside. Then we're going to see the opposition to Jesus from that's in the spirit world. That's another aspect of the pieces that are being gathered here, the spirit world. And then finally, we're going to look at the issue from the inside, Judas' betrayal from the inside. So I want you to notice with me from the outside what's going on here. Look with me at verses 1 to 2. It says, The feast of the unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover. So let me just kind of remind you of what that was. If you remember, on the night of the final plague in Egypt, when Moses was in Egypt with the children of Israel and they were in bondage to the Egyptians, the final plague was the plague of the what? The firstborn. And that was where the death angel would come through and he would kill all the firstborn And what the Jews had to do was is they had to sacrifice a Passover lamb and eat it that night and put its blood on the what? On the doorposts of the, of their house so that the death angel would what? Pass over them. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was the meal that commemorated the Passover where the death angel passed over them, and immediately afterwards, they were allowed to leave Egypt and go toward salvation. It was really their salvation that it commemorated. So this is a very important feast and festival in the Jewish life, and it still is today. So during this time, look at what it says there, verse 2, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, who's the chief priest? Well, those are the priests who were in the temple and the scribes, those were kind of like the lawyers, those who, who kept the law. So they're really, what we're talking about here is, is the officials, the Jewish officials in Jerusalem, the leaders of the people, are trying to kill Jesus. Now, two things come out of this I want you to see about opposition to Jesus from the outside. First of all, Jesus is a threat to their way of life. Jesus is a threat to their way of life. The reason why they're opposed to Jesus is because Jesus ultimately is a threat to their life. What do you mean by that, George? Well, by this point, here's the thing that's going on with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders at that time. Yes, they're in Roman domination. Yes, they don't really like the Romans being in control of, of everything. Yes, they would like the Romans to be gone. And yes, they would like to have their own kingdom. But the problem is is that they like the system the way it is. What do you mean? Even though they don't like the Romans, even though they would like to get rid of the Romans, the Romans kind of let them have a level of self-governance. Yes, there was a Roman procurator who ultimately made decisions, But the reality was, is he let the local officials make their decisions within their own communities, and especially religious decisions. And in the center of the religious life, in the center of a Jew's life at that time, was the temple. And the temple was an elaborate system whereby money was coming in all the time, and there was power there, because it was the means of controlling the people. And so here comes Jesus, and he really, from the beginning, is attacking their whole system and their whole means of why they're doing it. From I mean, he's radical to them. And they want rid of him because Jesus and what he stands for and what he wants is a threat to their way of life. So they want to get rid of him. Folks, let me just stop for a moment. Nothing's changed, has it? Do you understand the opposition to Jesus Christ today from people, whether it's at work, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's even within your own family, is not because of ultimately who Jesus is, but because of what Jesus stands for. And the reality of who Jesus is in this sense, that ultimately everybody has to bow a knee to him. And some people don't want that. So some people don't want to submit to that. They they don't want to change their life. They like their life the way it is. And so they're opposed to him. They're opposed to Christianity. They're opposed to Jesus, ultimately, because they don't like the change. They want to have it go the way they want it to go. In fact, isn't that what's happening today in our country? Everybody wants their own way, right? If you think about that, we just want to do our own thing. Now, let me just stop for a moment. If everybody's doing their own thing, what is that ultimately? It's called chaos. And that's what ultimately is going to happen, isn't it? Chaos. But here's what's going on. Jesus is a threat to their way of life. And here's what they're doing. If you notice the text, it doesn't come out in your English translation, but they were seeking a way to kill him. So I want you to see here is they were actively seeking a way to destroy him. What do you mean actively? The word sought there in its tense form in the original languages means that they were continually looking for a way to destroy him. So they were looking like, can we do it this way? No, it's not working. Can we do it this way? That can't work. Can we do it this way? No, the people will be upset. So they were continually mulling over in their minds a way to get rid of him. So it's not just that they're opposed they're actively seeking how to destroy him. That's from the outside. And that's true too even to this day. People who are it's not just opposition, people not just saying I disagree with you, people who are actively what? Trying to get rid of what you believe. Period. That's happening around the world right now. You realize there are more martyrs today for the faith than there were during the time of the Romans. People actively dying. We say, that's just a Muslim. No, it's not happening just in Muslim countries, folks. It's happening in other countries that aren't Muslim. There's an opposition from the outside. But Luke tells us that that's one aspect of the pieces that are gathering against Jesus. One aspect of the darkness of the human heart. There's another aspect that he brings into her. We we see here in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. Then Satan... Enter Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Luke tells us that there's another aspect of the pieces that are gathered here, and it's from the spirit world. Satan himself enters into the picture here. And what's going on here? Well, first of all, this reflects the cosmic nature of Jesus' mission. The fact that Satan would involve himself in this plot Satan would involve himself in the destruction of Jesus, tells you that what Jesus is about to do and about to accomplish and his whole mission and what he was doing throughout his life is not just some local thing that's happening. It is something that is of cosmic proportions, something that is beyond just the local thing. It is something that is in the spirit world as well. Because now we're not just talking about crucifying some pathetic figure here. We're not just talking about killing some madman or some false teacher. Satan himself, the archenemy of God, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, enters into the picture himself to take a part in the killing of Jesus. So we say this this reflects the cosmic nature of Jesus' mission. So here's what I want you to see. Even the spiritual forces of darkness seek to destroy Jesus. Even the spiritual forces of darkness seek to destroy Jesus. You know what? That's really crazy, isn't it? Here he is. He's God. And they're out to destroy him. They know who he is. Remember, when he comes in conflict with him, they immediately, son of the Most High, they recognize him. They're fearful of him. But even in their fear and everything, they're trying to destroy him. And that's where Satan enters into this man. Takes control now. What does that mean, George? Well, Satan enters into him. There's only two places in Scripture that it talks like that. One is here. The other is in reference to the Antichrist later on. Some some say is it possession where you know Judas really had no had no say in what he was doing. Nope, I don't believe that because Judas is Scripture tells us very clearly he's responsible for his own actions. But what we see here is in, it, in its most minimal form. Satan entering into him was that Satan influenced and gave direction. Influenced and gave direction. What do you mean by that? Well, we talk about being filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives. What does that mean? Some people are scared of that, being filled by the Spirit. What does that mean, George? Well, it means the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit in your life means that you're allowing the Holy Spirit to, number one, influence you and control you. In a certain give you direction in a certain area of your life. Everybody understand me? That's what's going on here. When the spirit enters into you, especially Satan enters into someone, he is giving direction and influencing. In the most minimal form, that's what we see happening here with Satan entering into Judas. Because why? Even the spiritual forces of darkness are seeking to destroy Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. There's an interesting point here. Hatred blinds a person concerning reality. Hatred blinds a person concerning reality. What do you mean by that, George? Well, I want you to think about it for a moment. Of of all the beings in the world who truly understand God far better than anyone else, who would that be? Satan. Scripture tells us in the Old Testament that he served in the presence of God. He was one of the higher angels before his fall. So do you think Satan has A better comprehension of who God is than any of us? Oh, yeah. Yeah, by far. So, but here's the thing about hatred and sin. Hatred and sin and pride can so blind you to reality that you think that you can accomplish something when in reality you can't. So here is Satan involving himself in the plot to destroy Jesus. And the reality is is that he was sealing his own doom. Think about that for a moment. Satan was sealing his own doom. What do you mean by that? Because at the cross, who got the victory? Was it Satan? No. Jesus. Because at the cross, Satan's head, figuratively, was what? Crushed. Do you understand what I'm saying? As his heel was bruised. See, here's the thing, hatred. And so we can learn from this reality about Satan. You know what it's like? If you get to the point where you're so bent out of shape about people, you ever met somebody like that who's so embittered towards someone? The darkness of the human heart can be so, so blinding to you that you can miss reality because all you think about is what? Destroying someone, venting your hatred on someone. And that's what we see here in the life of Satan. We see that happening here. Here's the other reality. We see the pieces gathered from the outside. We see the pieces gathered in the spiritual world. But we also see the pieces gathered from within. And I think this is the most deadliest. Because here's what I want you to understand. Up until this point, the leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And they were actively seeking a way to do it. But here's the problem. They couldn't find a way. They couldn't find a way to do it. So the real threat to Jesus, even though they were wanting to trip him up, even though they were looking for a reason to accuse him and, and then therefore kill him, they couldn't do it. We've already seen that through many of the confrontations that Jesus has had with the lawyers and the scribes and so forth. They couldn't find anything. They were amazed. And they were afraid of the people because Jesus was popular. The threat wasn't from the outside. The threat's not even from the spiritual world. The greatest threat to Jesus was from within. Do you know what I mean? The greatest threat was from in One of his own twelve. One of the twelve he selected. And specifically a fellow by the name of Judas Iscariot. So I want you to notice a couple things here about Judas. First of all, Judas takes the initiative to betray Jesus. Luke brings this out. and In fact, it's very interesting how the gospel writers present Judas. They're not vicious in their portrayal of Judas. They just kind of say it like it is. He's the one who betrayed. And they just kind of -of matter-of-factly... Make the statement of what Judas did. And so, really, to be honest with you here, they're not vicious in their thing. They're not trying to pin something on Judas because they don't need to. They just simply need to say it like it is. And Luke very clearly brings it out that it was Judas who took the initiative here. He decided it's time to give him up. He took the initiative. Notice something. The text doesn't say, Satan led him to do this. You notice that? The text says he took the initiative. In fact, what's going on here? His motives are purely selfish. Look with me at verse 5. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he took the initiative... He goes and meets with the the, the leaders, the chief priests, and the captains. Now, who's the captains in the text? The captains are the captains of the temple guard, kind of the local police there. And he meets with them, and they're trying to figure it out. And they're, they're happy because all of a sudden now, you know, they've been looking for a way to get Jesus. All of a sudden now it's been handed to them. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll make a small investment here. Why is he doing this? Pure selfishness. Now, some people said, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion out there as to what his motives are. One one view is, as held by some scholars is, is that uh, Judas wasn't really that bad a guy. He was just trying to force Jesus to do the Messiah thing and overthrow the Romans. Okay? Hey, weird way to get him to do stuff. Okay? The other one I tend to lean towards this myself is is that Judas was by this point realizing of all the disciples, he was truly understanding what Jesus was saying. Because the other disciples, if you know, even even up until the point of his ascension, the other disciples were still like, Lord, is this when you're going to establish the kingdom? I mean, they were waiting for Jesus to overthrow the Romans. And they're like his right-hand men, so they think they've got a place... In the kingdom. And at, at one point I think Judas was believing that himself. But I think at another point Judas was really listening to what Jesus was saying. And if you look at what Jesus was saying, what was he saying? Guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And so I think Judas is like, okay, I just gave up three years of my life. And he's talking about dying. Dying. This is not what I was on the road show for. I'm getting out with what I can get. The text doesn't really tell us what his motives are. It just simply tells us why he did it. So you can take my view and say, "Ah, I don't agree with that one, George. Fine. Come up with your own. But the fact of the matter is, he did it. He took the initiative, and it was purely selfish on his point. Purely selfish. There's one other point I want you to see here. He is focused on looking for the opportunity. That's his character. We see that. We'll see that later when Mary wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair after anointing him with oil, and Judas is upset at the amount of money that was wasted there. Because he said it could be given to the poor and the text tells us that he was the treasurer and he had his hands in the pot. That's his nature. He's looking for the opportunity. And the text comes right out and says that the darkness of his heart, he's going to look for the opportunity to do wrong. He's going to look for the opportunity to give Jesus over. That's a dark heart. I think we can relate to that. What do you mean, George? Because I'm not betraying Jesus. I'm not giving somebody else up to die. Yeah, but we sometimes look, think about it, in the darkness of our hearts, we sometimes look to sin. If you're struggling with an addiction, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Because your heart is darkened. And you look for the opportunity to feed it, to do wrong. This is all indicative of a dark heart, what's going on here with Judas. Purely self-motivated, in it for himself, looking for the opportunity. Taking the initiative when he needs to. See, Judas, can I be honest with you, is real to us today. Because Judas could be right here in our church. What do you mean? Because here's the thing. You know, you got to understand, and I realize this after pastoring 20 years now. Not everybody comes for the right reasons. Do you realize that? Not everyone comes for the right reasons. Some come because family's there, and that's a family thing. Some come because the church is actually... A place where people can maybe have a platform and do things and hold positions. And it has nothing to do with loving God or nothing to do with being with the family of God. It has to do with themselves. That's what Judas was. Judas was in it for, I mean, he spent three years with Jesus and it wasn't about Jesus, folks. For Judas, it was about who? Himself. And then right before the ship goes down, because he's listening, he says, I'm out of here. And for three years, he's got 30 pieces of silver to show for it. That's darkness. We can relate, can't we? When we look at this and we see the opposition from the outside and we we look at the spiritual world, but when we look at it from the inside, the reality is what does Judas reveal in us? Judas reveals our own dark souls. I'm I'm old enough to remember because it was right around the time that I became a Christian. I remember the, uh, the fall of Jimmy Swaggart. How many of you remember that? If you're young here, you have no clue what I'm talking about because that happened in 1987. But before 1987 if you were a church-going person or whatever, you knew that on Sunday mornings there was Jimmy Swagger on the TV. Some of you maybe watched Jimmy Swagger, But in 1987, Jimmy Swagger fell morally. Ten years later in 1997, I, I, at that time I was subscribing to Christianity Today, and I, I saw there was an article in there by a guy who went to visit Jimmy's church ten years later, because he's still in ministry, he refused to give up the pulpit. But And he talked about how before, you know, it would be a big, big whatever filled with people. Now it was just a small section with curtains covering up the empty seats. And he was writing about that, but he said, I won't get into the details of the article about ten years later. It's actually been 20 years now. But ten years later is what he's saying at that point, and he wrote this at the end, and I thought this was very powerful. He says, Why do we hate Jimmy Swaggard? Now, let me just stop for a moment. He said, That's a pretty tough word. Well, let's be honest. People were hating him. People were hating him. Their actions, let's just call it like a hate. Why do we hate Jimmy Swaggart? And this is what the author wrote, and I thought this was so powerful, and I'll share it with you. He said, we hate Jimmy Swaggart because Jimmy Swaggart reveals the darkness in our own souls. And it's easier to hate him than it is to hate ourselves. It's easy to hate Judas. But what a Judas does is he reveals the darkness in our own souls. Because it's easier to hate him than to hate ourselves. You know, the the scripture makes it very clear That when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ, his betrayal, the brutality that he experienced, his sacrifice on the cross, we are all culpable. We are all guilty. That's reality, isn't it?
0: Thank you for being with us this morning. And we trust that today's message has been both challenging and an encouragement to your heart. This coming week.